Hello and welcome to the I Don't Mind You Decide podcast with me, your host, John Boyle. If you are listening, that means that I have finally got around to recording and most importantly, releasing my first full-length episode. Aren't you a lucky duck? And if you haven't already, please go and check out the overview episode, which should be tagged to the top of my feed. I'm just going to take a quick pause for everyone to do that. Have you listened to it yet? And he came back. Wow. Okay, let's proceed. Now, for the first episode, it is all about one of the UK's most beloved British actors and my apparent lookalike, Hugh Grant. And all I'll say on the latter topic is that I too have never seen myself and a young Hugh Grant in a room together. Now, the inspiration for all this uh, for this episode came from a documentary that was on the BBC in the Christmas of 2019 and it was entitled 25 Years on Screen, all about Hugh Grant's career from 1994 to 2019 and it got me thinking about Hugh in a different light and reanalyzing his career and I think there are some really interesting topics and nuances that can be explored that um, you know some might be obvious but some you probably haven't considered yet but I don't want to start this episode by talking about Hugh I want to start by talking about someone else someone whose career might have more in common and have more intersections with Hugh than you might think and that person is Matthew McConaughey let me explain first how the idea for these comparisons came about and secondly why I think they are relevant. So, back in December, my sister bought me Matthew McConaughey's autobiography book, Green Lights, for my birthday. And firstly, it's it's an excellent book. It is not your traditional autobiography of just going through and kind of listing all your achievements. It really is set out as a a roadmap for how he lives his life. And um he's clearly quite a spiritual person and the the idea behind the book is all about how you catch what he what he calls obviously the the titular name green lights and how people can trip themselves up when they're catching green lights green lights being when you are having success either uh, at work kind of socially anything like that and how you turn red and amber lights green so it's a book i would highly recommend or if you're not much of a reader or you can't be bothered to read it, uh, McConaughey was also on Joe Rogan's podcast promoting it before Christmas and they have a sprawling and, and very engaging conversation as Joe Rogan often tends to. So before we get on to Hugh's career, I want to take a quick look under the bonnet at Matthew McConaughey. So. In the early part of his career, from the mid-90s to the mid-noughties, McConaughey was very much typecast as the handsome lead, with a, a southern drawl, in a number of rom-coms of varying degrees of quality and success. We're talking How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, which is on Netflix and well worth a watch or a rewatch, in which Matthew McConaughey's Benjamin Barry tries to make Kate Hudson's Andy Anderson fall in love with him in 10 days while she simultaneously makes him try to break up with her. Oddly enough, this is a film where all the main characters and lead actors appear to have alliterative names, apart from Kate Hudson, who slightly lets the side down. And maybe in another era, they might have cast Marilyn Monroe to truly complete the quartet. 
Another film we have is Failure to Launch, which is also good fun. And Fool's Gold, which weirdly is in my friend Tom's top three movies of all time. And of course, who could forget the Scrooge-esque girls. Oh, Freudian slip. I should say the ghosts of Girlfriend's Past. And McConaughey admits in his book that he enjoyed making these films, but they became very much something that he did on autopilot. And so, in 2009, he downed tools. He stopped taking scripts for rom-coms, no matter how juicy the offer, and he decided to wait it out and to take his career in a different path. And the period that follows is widely heralded as the McConaissance. Um, now let me give some context and perhaps a little bit of mansplaining about the Maconnaissance. Obviously it's a play on the word and the term the Renaissance, which was a period of great social and cultural development, uh, representing the enlightenment of man and the expression of glorious artwork. And so I guess it depends how high your opinion is of Matthew McConaughey's preceding films as to whether you think that the term Maconnaissance is truly fitting. So, from 2011, having taken two years off where he couldn't work because he wouldn't take rom-coms and he wasn't being given any other scripts, McConaughey reels off the following list of films. And this list is not exhaustive, but firstly you have the underrated and underseen Lincoln Lawyer, Killer Joe, Mud, Wolf of Wall Street, Dallas Buyers Club, and Interstellar. So first, let's break down thematically what is different in the roles that he played post-2011 as opposed to his role as the rom-com hunk um, in the mid-noughties. So firstly, we've got The Lincoln Lawyer in 2011, in which McConaughey goes back to some of his roots in a way, where he plays the leading man in a middle-budget legal drama, harking back to his first leading role in 1996's A Time to Kill. Then in 2013, we have The Wolf of Wall Street, where McConaughey is very much not the leading man. That role is played by Leo. But in the two or three scenes that he is in, McConaughey holds his own and arguably outshines DiCaprio, which is a feat that shouldn't be sniffed at. And there aren't many actors who have the charisma, the screen presence or the acting chops to pull something like that off. In fact, McConaughey pulls off one of the all-time heat checks in a movie here. I won't bore you with the story about how the chest-bumping scene came about, as I'm sure you all know it, but if you are re-watching this, or even just re-watching the scene of them having, um, having lunch together at the top of the tower in New York, really I think what you should look out for is his superb explanation and evisceration of the American financial system. And I quote, don't let your investors take it out. Don't let them make it real. Remind you of GameStop, anyone? And as Mark Hanna, McConaughey's character here, you can see how slim he is, not just from his diet of martinis and cocaine every four and one half minutes, but because this was shot around the time of McConaughey's piece de resistance, Dallas Buyers Club, earning him his Oscar for Best Actor. So I think if you look at the next phase of the McConaissance, you see McConaughey as the lead in blockbusters and Oscar fodder alike. In Interstellar and Dallas Buyers Club, you see McConaughey as a true leading man. 
capable of delivering in both huge action and sci-fi hits and in much uh, smaller and nuanced character-driven films. Um, obviously, Interstellar, he's working with Christopher Nolan in another one of Nolan's kind of mind-bending, time-transforming sci-fi flicks. But McConaughey really brings a, a kind of a, a, hu a human element to it. Really struggling to say human there. A real human element to it. He is not just the uh, kind of smash him, crash him, leading man hunk. He is incredibly vulnerable and you really feel for him and the relationship between him and his daughter. And ultimately it's that that underpins Interstellar and that makes it work. I won't talk too much about Dallas Buyers Club. As I said, McConaughey was awarded the Oscar for Best Actor. Um, I think what I actually want to dwell on a little bit more is True Detective, which is ultimately one of my all-time favourite series of TV in which McConaughey starred in 2014 um, across the screen from his self-titled brother from another mother, Woody Harrelson. And... It is a brooding and dark series jumping between different time periods. Um, McConaughey and Harrelson play detectives. Um, it's set against the backdrop of Louisiana, which is bleak and unforgiving as nature really does play a driving force in the narrative of this movie. Um, it's slow but gripping and eminently rewatchable. I think I've watched it about three times at this stage because you really do pick something new up at all times. And I think a lot of that is because of this atypical linear trajectory that um, the creator, I think Mick Polizzato, is really, really interested in, in all three of the different series of True Detective that they have, because each series, if people haven't seen it, each series has a different cast, a different storyline. They're totally separate, but they just have the same makers and producers. And what's interesting here is that originally, um, McConaughey was requested to audition for the part that was played by Woody Harrelson but it shows the confidence and the wherewithal that he had at this point that he turned it down and pushed to play the character of Rust Cole. Quick side note on the name Rust. I just think it's a really, really cool name. I think definitely cooler in an American accent, kind of a Russ Cole rather than Rust with a hard T. Um, other notable Rusts, you have Rusty from the Oceans movies, played by Brad Pitt. Um, that's about it, actually. The only Rusty I know in real life was a, a family member's dog. Mm. And I'm not sure that calling my kid Rusty would, would ever work, but boy, will I give it a go. And finally, in the reconnaissance, actually, I think a film that is almost the litmus test for how different what McConaughey is doing at this period, you have Magic Mike. Because if you were to just look at this film and, and be told what it is, I think in the trailer it's literally described as Magic Mike, Channing Tatum stripper movie, you would think this would be a straight line continuation of McConaughey's previous work. But actually, I think it really represents a, a notable divergence here primarily because McConaughey is not in this case the protagonist and the sexy male lead. I mean, he is still Matthew McConaughey, so 
he's not exactly bad looking, but he is kind of the the older, more senior stripper, which is a sentence I wasn't expecting to tackle when I came into the podcast game. But here we are. Um, and yeah, I think, frankly, the first time I watched this film, I was a bit disappointed because I still saw McConaughey um, and definitely, definitely Tatum as um, basically the slightly cheesy but endearing and good-looking rom-com leads. But what Soderbergh does here is diverge away from those lighter topics, really trying, I don't think totally succeeding, but definitely trying in unpicking uh, a lot more of the weighty and emotional undertones within the film. And ultimately, this is a film about kind of entrepreneurs and people striving to do to do better and to be better and to to live out the American dream. Of course, it's also a stripper movie, a Channing Tatum stripper movie, as we said. But McConaughey's role in it is not what you would have expected if you were to hear about this film, let's say, back in 2007. And to be clear, and I guess to summarise, I enjoy both the pre- and the post-McConaissance. Without getting too philosophical, I think in many ways that you need one to properly appreciate the other. You need to see McConaughey in all of these fluffy rom-com roles you know some good some not so good to really appreciate the um kind of about turn but but a lot of ways in in, in the reconnaissance you see things that mcconaughey was doing in the 2000s he always had an incredible screen presence to him he was just the, the plots were always driven by how he was interacting with females largely whereas later on it is really it's it's how he's interacting with everyone or in the case of Dallas Buyers Club how he is interacting with himself and I think that is the biggest change when you take the kind of pre-2009 and post-2009 reconnaissance. Finally a little, little bit of trivia to to leave you on the reconnaissance um, it was actually a phrase coined by McConaughey himself um, during an interview in the 2010s and in the interview he claimed that another journalist had come up with it and it clearly stuck but I guess a question to leave you on is is comparing your recent work to the renaissance slightly self-aggrandizing and it should also be noted that I avoided all puns on my name for the title of this podcast namely boiling point Although clearly I was not able to fight the same urge when it came to the podcast titles. Transition. But enough about McConaughey, the tasty amuse-bouche of this episode, if you will. And on to the meteor topic, the main course, that is Hugh Grant. Now, when you think of Hugh Grant, what do you think? You think floppy hair, tortoiseshell glasses. He's dressed up smart in a suit or a tuxedo. He's probably in a rom-com, right? Flirting and pursuing women in a bumbly but strangely effective manner. But it might surprise some people to know that Hugh Grant actually hasn't been in a rom-com since 2009's Did You Hear About The Morgans? In fact, in recent years, he has done some really interesting and wider work, which we will be discussing today, taking into account the overall arc of Hugh's now 30-plus year acting career. And I'll be exploring whether we could maybe consider this recent period 
as a reconnaissance of sorts. Break. Now I think at a high level, Hugh Grant's career can be broken down into three clear phases. The first I will refer to as the floppy-haired Richard Curtis years. From 1994 till 2000, there are a number of kind of underlying themes in the films and the characters that Hugh Grant plays. Firstly, he is a master of seduction. So, well, I guess, as we said earlier, kind of bumbly and ineffective, but as it, it works. So clearly he is a, a subtle master of seduction. Of course, we have Four Weddings and a Funeral and Notting Hill. Those would be the big ones, I think, in, in phase one. And in Four Weddings and a Funeral, Grant actually afterwards claimed that the protagonist is really nothing like him. Rather, it is assumed to be more similar to Richard Curtis, who is the writer and director of both of these movies. Um, and another thing that ties these movies together is that they all have American women in them, uh, women that Hugh was seducing, much as he was seducing audiences over the pond at the same time. In fact, any of you who know too much about the early phase of Hugh Grant's career will know that he was more than seducing just American audiences, uh, he was actually seducing some American women too. Um, despite having a long-term girlfriend at the time, he was arrested um, in the 90s for lewd conduct in a public place uh, whilst he was found, or when he was found rather, by police to be having intercourse in his car with a sex worker named Divine Brown. In hindsight, I think that's quite a generous use of the term seduction. Solicitation is probably more accurate. But this all happened just off Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles. That, ladies and gentlemen, is Hollywood. And I guess uh, a few points on each film. In Four Weddings, I guess when I rewatched it, I was I just had this question in the back of my mind. Is Hugh Grant, is he a bad guy in this? Um, he certainly seems to have been a bad boyfriend, or at least a very unsure one. Um, it's hard to get a sense of what type of person Hugh really is around these ladies in the film, seeing as the, well, the only time you're really exposed to them is at the aforementioned weddings and funerals, and those are hardly the, uh, the best times to get a sense of a person's true character. And I think another thing that Four Weddings is really notable for is the Rowan Atkinson. I think it's probably slightly more than a cameo, but Rowan Atkinson here is really at his peak, um, if you probably take out maybe Mr Bean and Johnny English. But if you enjoy his sermon in this film, then you should really be sure to YouTube his stand-up sketch, uh, A Wedding at Cana, which is hilarious. Another thing that I thought when I was re-watching this was what the hell is Hugh wearing when he is wandering round the South Bank in London in a oversized Hawaiian shirt and a, a pair of short shorts? I mean, he wouldn't have looked out of place um, in Thailand, perhaps, in Bridget Jones's Edge of Reason. But coming around Waterloo and strolling by the Thames, I'm not sure it's a look that totally works for our Mr Hugh. And the other cornerstone of phase one of Hugh's career where he plays the bumbly floppy head 
British love interest is, of course, Notting Hill. Um, and Notting Hill actually has a, a really interesting origin story. Um, the story goes that Richard Curtis' um, inspiration for the film came when he was driving to his sister's house to attend a dinner party. And he became fixated with the idea of um, your middle-of-the-road kind of regular British guy showing up to one of these things with a Hollywood A-lister on his arm and seeing and capturing the uh, response and shock of the other attendees. And anyone who has recently watched this film will attest that that scene is, is captured rather hilariously when Julia Roberts does show up at the sister's house for the first time. Um, and Curtis actually stated in the BAFTA documentary that he did not originally want to cast Grant, but that after auditioning what felt like hundreds of other actors, he finally gave Hugh an audition, which he promptly smashed out of the park. Obviously, most of you will probably have seen Notting Hill and Four Weddings and a Funeral, but if you enjoyed these and you want to see something similar, then you should check out Mickey Blue Eyes, in which Hugh Grant plays an English auctioneer. This time it's set in America, so rather than Hugh seducing one American woman, he is, in a way, seducing um, the entire of the America, or at least the entire American family of the daughter of a mafia kingpin who he proposes to um, he doesn't know that she has these family connections and he comes to realize that certain favors would be asked of him wait that sounded sexual the favors aren't sexual guys but interestingly this film contains as many as eight cast members from the sopranos which also started in 1999 and has Really some uh, incredibly amusing marketing on the poster where the strapline reads, they've created a mobster. And if that has drawn you in, which I know it will have, the film is available to stream on Netflix. So before we move on to phase two of Hugh's career, one of the things I really just want to call out is how big of a box office um, success Hugh really was. I think it, it probably isn't appreciated enough how huge he is both um, in Britain and across the pond. Um, in 1994, in Four Weddings and a Funeral, um, that was, at the time, the highest grossing British film of all time. Um, it was then trumped in 1999 by Notting Hill, which dwarfed Four Weddings' $244 million at the box office, with a whopping $363 million. In fact, if you look through the last 30 years at the biggest British worldwide box office films, Hugh appears as many as four times. Um, you've got Four Weddings in 1994, Notting Hill in 1999, Love Actually in 2003, and a bit of a surprising one, a bit of a curveball, I thought, was 2016's Bridget Jones's Baby. Um, there's a bit of an asterisk on this one uh, where Hugh doesn't actually feature, but he is, of course, a staple um, part of the overall uh, series of films and franchise and from looking through the the only other actors and British actors I could see that would have been in more of these um, annual top um, box office films would have been Daniel Radcliffe obviously starring in Harry Potter which I think 
all all eight films were the biggest British films of the of the respective years that they came out, and then Daniel Craig for um, the Bond films, obviously Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, um, etc. But I think it's quite different here because those are franchise films. People are coming to them with pre-existing knowledge of the characters and as good as Daniel Radcliffe to a certain extent and I think Daniel Craig to a, a huge extent, the the two Daniels, um, as good as they are, that's not really the reason that people are drawn to these films. They're drawn by Harry Potter and by James Bond. But in Hughes films, I guess Four Weddings and Notting Hill especially, the films really are centred and driven by him, um, especially in 1994. He was he was a relative unknown at that point, and these are original screenplays. So it is incredible that they had this level of success. Um, I think that's probably why I titled this theme as floppy-haired Richard Curtis years, because as great as Hugh Grant is in these films, a lot of the success must lay at Richard Curtis's door. And in a way, I think... These two films represent his his peak and the Richard Curtis operating at the zenith of his powers. And, I mean, we'll get into it, but I'm not sure the same is true for Hugh. Bray. Now, I think the next phase of Hugh's career can be described as the somewhat shorter-haired and slightly sleazier evolution, and still somewhat influenced by Richard Curtis years. Quite a mouthful, I know. And from, I would say, 2001, maybe right up until 2009, Hugh is no longer the floppy-haired, boyish-faced, archetypal good guy who we necessarily root for. Um, he takes a, a slight turn, and that's I emphasise that, a slight turn. I think this is very much uh, an evolution rather than a revolution from the films that Hugh was making in the 90s. You can still recognise aspects of what he is doing and of course a lot of the films that he is still in are indeed rom-coms but I think this evolution as we are now calling it um, is clearly demonstrated in these three films you've got Bridget Jones's Diary in 2001 um, the sequel and follow-up Bridget Jones Edge of Reason in 2004 and sandwiched in the middle you have About a Boy which came out in 2002 and in all of these films, Hugh is no longer the classic Mr. Nice Guy. In both the Bridget Jones's films, he plays the charming but ultimately rather sleazy Daniel Cleaver. He is paired against Colin Firth, who plays the much more straight-edged love interest who you were kind of meant to root for a lot more. But Grant really excels in this role, um, particularly in the second film, playing a total slime ball. I mean, you know he's terrible and would be terrible for Bridget, but you can't help but enjoy his company. I think it should also be noticed that this is another very upper middle class kind of British Oxbridge type affair. Um, of course, this is part of Hugh's background, having graduated from Oxford, so I'm not going to pretend that this is a, a total about face from his background or from his previous work. But I think you see similar themes running through About a Boy, where Hugh this time plays a womanizer named Will Freeman. And he might not quite be the sleazeball of Daniel Cleaver, um, kind of hiring 
women who maybe turn out to be ladyboys in uh, in Thailand for uh, sexual lewd acts. But, you know, Will Freeman's character attending single parent meetings when not having a son to pick up women, it's not too far off. I've got to admit, of Hugh's big back catalogue, this is probably the film that I enjoyed the least. Um, I rewatched it last year, didn't particularly enjoy it. You've got the, um, I think it's particularly notable for being the breakout film for Charles star Nicholas Holt, whose career I have really enjoyed most recently in the true history of the Kelly gang. But in this, I'm not going to lie, he's just pretty annoying. As I said at the top, I think these films are also notable because Hugh's starting to age a little bit. Although he's he kind of had this boyish face, he is in 2002, 41, and he has chopped away his floppy hair and taken off his tortoiseshell glasses. So, as I said, not totally different from what he was doing before, but you are starting to see some of these themes develop and themes that will really come, I think, roaring to the surface when Hugh steps away or is maybe pushed away from the rom-com scene. It's interesting, I think, um, an American critic noted when reviewing about a boy that the expertise of Hugh Grant is in playing characters that audiences enjoy seeing taken down a peg or two as punishment for philandering and womanising and simply being too handsome for words and with an English accent. And I think that's definitely true of this phase. Um, things don't always work out for Hugh's characters in these films and, you know, you don't necessarily feel sorry for him. In fact, that is the... That is the kind of edge that he's playing, the sort of um, nod and the wink that the character gives to you, that he knows that, it, that he's not necessarily a good guy, but it's a testament to how good he is as an actor and as a screen presence that you can't help but slightly root for him. And indeed, if you want to link this back to COVID and the current situation and some life advice you can maybe take to get through these dark and dreary days. It could be that of Will Freeman's character in About a Boy, where he talks about breaking your life down into 30-minute chunks. And I think I was actually reading recently that Elon Musk actually breaks his life down into six-minute chunks, but I don't think I'm quite at Elon Musk's level yet, maybe in a few years. Now, before we move on to Hugh's more recent work, I want to talk about the big one, the elephant in the room, Love Actually, which came out in 2003, which is undoubtedly a British classic and a cornerstone of A British Christmas, perhaps rivaled maybe only in 2019 by the comeback of Gavin and Stacey for their long-awaited Christmas special. And actually, criminally, this wasn't available um, last Christmas um, on any of the streaming services. And I don't think it was shown on TV either, but I'm sure all, if not most of you, have seen it. And to be honest, if you haven't, I'm slightly worried about you. So as you all know, Grant plays the charmingly believable and widely gift prime minister. And I think it's a testament to Hugh that this is both one of the funniest and most memorable storylines within the film. Um, I think a lot of this also is down to him facing off against Billy Bob Thornton as the slimy and sexually inappropriate US president. 
as somewhat of a forewarning for the tanned monstrosity that was to come. And I think quick side note before we dive into analysing this film is I don't know if anyone else noticed that the kid in this, Liam Neeson's son, who is played by Thomas Brodie Sangster, is also Benny Watts in The Queen's Gambit. That's the, uh, the, the cowboy chessman for anyone who has or hasn't seen it. <clears throat> and I think an interesting way to analyse this film, and in fact the two phases of Hugh Grant's career, is by a piece of criticism of Love Actually written by The Guardian's Hayley Freeman. Um, she professes to loving Four Weddings and a Funeral and Notting Hill, but to really, really hating Love Actually. Shocking, I know. But, um, Kind of her wider point here is around the degradation of all of the female characters in the film, all of whom are portrayed as socially or professionally inferior to their male counterparts, um, and who all seem to end up forgiving or kind of helplessly falling in love with them for no apparent good reason. And I think, you know, she has a bit of a point here, but you can take um you can take that criticism really and apply it back to some of Grant's earlier films, obviously a lot of them being with Richard Curtis to understand whether they apply. Um, I don't think they necessarily do within Notting Hill or Four Weddings and a Funeral where in a way it is Grant who is playing the inferior, the person who is kind of slightly a fish out of water, punching above his weight, trying to impress these glamorous and successful American women. Um, Bridget Jones is a bit of a grey area, you know. Um, obviously, Grant is technically, I guess, her boss in the first film, um, but he doesn't necessarily wear the pants, as it were, in that relationship. I think, actually, if you remember the film correctly, it's, it's definitely Bridget who wears the, uh, the massive pants that Hugh is such a big fan of. But one of the, the specific bits of criticism by Hayley Freeman of Love Actually that I found quite interesting was this. So she says, of course, there's a plot line about how all American women are dying to sleep with nerdy Englishmen because that's a leitmotif in Richard Curtis's films. Going to admit, I had to Google what leitmotif or late motif means. Going to go with leitmotif. And it is a short recurring musical phrase. And of course, I think... As we've previously said, this is normally where Hugh comes in um, as the charming British man who the American women wants to sleep with. But I have to admit, in the case of Love Actually, I do think she has a point. I find Colin's plotline really quite bizarre, particularly the dream sequence-esque landing in America where he goes into the snowy bar and picks up not one, but three women. Um, on the other hand, I think it should be noted that Hedley Freeman is in fact a self-proclaimed American woman. And therefore, she probably takes heightened defence to the inference that she too would take Colin home if she met him across ye old pond. But perhaps to Richard Curtis's credit, I think this is done with a slightly self-aware nod and a wink. Um, you know, he's pandering to and really over-egging the pudding of a recipe which had won him so much success and acclaim. I think really interestingly, you could probably compare this to what Christopher Nolan did in Tenet, where he followed up Dunkirk and Dark Knight Rises with 
another film with yet more masks, more mumbling, more unintelligible dialogue, you know? Another nod, nod, wink, wink. What did you say just there, John David Washington? I don't have a clue. So I don't think that Hadley's criticism on that specific case is totally fair, but I think in a way the criticism of a film of a whole and its treatment of women, I think it's a testament to how good Hugh Grant's previous films were, that the women are not just totally kind of objects of the the male gaze, as in fact kind of became the case, I think, a little bit more throughout the noughties, where we see some of the, um, the rom-coms that Matthew McConaughey was a part of. It is all centred around the man and his view and pursuit of the woman rather than um, exploring anything about of what the woman did in and of and kind of for themselves. And I think that's why How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days is probably McConaughey's best rom-com because you have both the man and woman have kind of equal agency pushing against each other. It's not just McConaughey trying to win um kate hudson over it's also kate hudson trying to break up with mcconaughey of course mcconaughey wins in the end as he always does but i think there's an interesting dichotomy there between the who holds the agency in these rom-coms and i think 2003 is a particularly significant year for a number of reasons hugh does go on to star in a few more rom-coms afterwards um you've got did you hear about the Morgans in 2009? But kind of post-2003, 2004 is, 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 is largely a bit of a forgettable phase in, in Hugh's career. And at the, at the same time, across the pond, you have McConaughey starring in How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, which also came out in 2003. And I think really is a signifier of the passing of the rom-com male lead crown from Hugh to McConaughey and perhaps in another episode we can talk about how the male and female rom-com king and queen crowns were chopped and changed across the past four decades or not you know whatever break so now we come to phase three of Hugh Grant's career and this encapsulates a lot of his recent and in my opinion more interesting work and I think it represents the biggest pivot away from the his kind of past as the charming affable rom-com lead and I guess this is where we're going to begin to try and unpick and get at that question of does Hugh Grant have something in these next series of films which can be considered uh, an equivalent to the reconnaissance I think part of the problem is I don't have a clear title for this phase of Hugh's career. You need it to be pun-based, and I mean, I'm struggling. I've got huge transformation, but that's a bit rubbish. So if you've got anything better, please do let me know. So Hugh recently revealed that he was finished with making rom-coms. Um, speaking to The Hollywood Reporter, he said, I got too old and ugly and fat to do them anymore. So now I've done other things, so I've marginally left self-hatred. Some of those romantic comedies I can look squarely in the face. One or two are shockers, and people like them. I'm a big believer that our job is to entertain. I see us as craftsmen, 
to make entertainment. And I think why this is interesting is that Hugh no longer sees rom-coms as where he can or should be entertaining. I guess another question we can ask is, how conscious was Hugh of not doing any more rom-coms? I mean, it certainly seemed like McConaughey actively stopped. He was still, and probably still is, batting away offers to do rom-coms. But it sounds slightly like Hugh Grant stopped being offered them. I mean, he's probably being a bit flippant, but he says, When I stopped being young and handsome, and I wasn't being offered romantic leading men, some really interesting parts came up. I'm just going to call out that whilst Hugh is no longer young, I most definitely feel that he is handsome. So don't be too hard on yourself, yeah, Hugh. And before we go on to the final section, I'd just like to pause for a quick word from our sponsors. So in this final section, I'm going to discuss three films in a bit more detail and to analyse what they enable Hugh to demonstrate that maybe his previous films did not. And we're also going to talk briefly about Hugh's long-awaited and long-overdue return to television. So I guess if we break down this next series of films thematically, I think one of the key things to call out is that they they enable Hugh to play fully rounded characters. He's no longer just the love interest defined by how well his pursuit is or isn't going. I think it also allows him to play a real range. Um, he can be charming and caring, as his character is in Florence Foster Jenkins. He can be awful and uh, a, a true villain, as he is in Paddington 2. And he can be sleazy, but this time in a in a non-sexual way, in the gentleman, or not-so-gentleman, in Hugh's character's case. But he's always incredibly well-rounded in these roles. He brings a real depth and empathy to them. You can always understand why he's doing what he's doing. You might not like it, you might not agree with it. And I think part of that is obviously down to the writing and the direction, but... Hugh plays a massive part in all of these. So first, we have Florence Foster Jenkins coming out in 2016. And this is the story of a comically bad classical singer played by Meryl Streep. And of course, it's easy to just focus on Meryl Streep. Like, she's Meryl Streep, for God's sake. She's probably the most decorated and undoubtedly one of the most successful actors of, really, of all time. But we can't allow this to overshadow the excellent work done by Hugh Grant in this film, um, playing the character St. Clair Bayfield. As a quick side note, what an incredible name. Um, I mean, you take the Oxbridge types that Hugh played in his early films, and this name, St. Clair Bayfield, it really blows them out of the water. As I said before, he's a very well-rounded character, you know? Um, he's neither, he just plays a very grey area. In in some ways, he is incredibly committed to um, Florence, played by Merrill, and in other ways, he is not. And I think one of the biggest differences here from Hugh's earlier performances is that he is not the joke here. He is the straight character supporting the person whose life is beginning to unravel. And I think what makes this film so good and so worth a watch or a rewatch if you've already seen it is that you could argue that the joke isn't on Meryl either. 
hence why this film works so well and has such a lovely and a charming edge to it. And if you're not totally sold on whether you should or shouldn't watch Florence Foster Jenkins, one other little dish I'll throw in there is that it also stars Howard from The Big Bang Theory. Whether that draws you in or puts you off, I'm not sure. But one thing I can guarantee you is that Sheldon's character does not appear at any time in this movie. I guess an interesting alternative reading of the film is that Grant is the Leonard to Streep Sheldon. Once again, whether that draws you in or puts you off, I really have no idea. I personally am not a Big Bang Theory fan, but worryingly, I think at one stage it was the most watched show on television, so I'm not going to piss off too many prospective fans. But it's in two of Hugh Grant's most recent films that he has really earned rave reviews and the critical reception that he was maybe lacking in some of his earlier work. I'm, of course, talking here about Paddington 2 and The Gentleman. And in both of these, Hugh plays the villain and he plays them with much aplomb, taking his sleazy and sinister ranges to new heights. But crucially, neither of them are sexualized. He is very much removed from the female gaze in these roles, and he is not gazing upon any females either, weirdly. His motivation, um, or the motivation for his characters in these two movies are both fascinating, because if you read them a certain way, they can be seen as reflections on his career as a whole. Firstly, in Paddington 2, playing Phoenix Buchanan, this character can be seen as strangely symbolic of the stage of his career that Hugh finds himself in. Here he is the actor who risks no longer being appreciated for his older roles and at risk of being forgotten and swept away in the tide of uh, new talented people because of it. As stated earlier, Hugh Grant was and arguably still is a massive star, but at the time of Paddington 2 in 2017, He had not been in a huge film since arguably 2004's Bridget Jones's Edge of Reason. He was in the Pirates Band of Misfits film in 2012, but I'm not sure that many of you will remember him for this particular role, unless you are under the age of 10, in which case apologies and welcome to the podcast. Luckily, Hugh's response to being at this stage of his career is nowhere near as sinister as the also wonderfully named Phoenix Buchanan character that he plays here. Instead of plotting against cuddly, marmalade sandwich loving bears, Hugh has proceeded to churn out some of his most interesting work to date in the past five years. I'm not going to dwell too much on kind of the themes of Paddington and Paddington 2. One thing I would like to call out is I think this film is particularly notable for being a sequel which is arguably better um, or at least I would say widely more appreciated than the original. Choosing between Paddington 1 and Paddington 2 is what I imagine choosing between your two kids is like but if you put a gun to my head I'm taking child number two thank you very much. Other nominations in this category include Godfather 2 versus Godfather 1 Uh, I can't really comment on this one for my sins. I have only seen the first Godfather, but I'll be sure to give the second one a watch and get back to you. Another one would be, a lot of people seem to think that Toy Story 2 is better than the original. 
I personally would disagree on this, but Toy Story 3 on the other hand, child number three please. Um, and then you've got Batman Dark Knight, which I think is undoubtedly celebrated as the apex of the uh, Nolan Dark Knight's trilogy. The fact that it's even called the Dark Knight trilogy when the first one is simply called Batman Begins really speaks to the impact of this second film on the trilogy as a whole. But coming back to Paddington 2 and assessing Hugh's character in it, it is interesting to stop and think about how much of himself Hugh really put into Phoenix Buchanan. How, mu how much of these, the emotions and responses to how your career is kind of going and how you are viewed by the public in what is ultimately a career defined by people's perception of you how much of um how much of this is is truly how Hugh might feel or, or feelings that he may have had at some point I mean I obviously don't have the answer to this and and, and I'm not sure Hugh would necessarily give it to anyone who asks but it's certainly an interesting one to ponder. Break! And finally we have The Gentleman, where Hugh is equally as impressive and nearly totally unrecognisable as from really from any of the other roles we have discussed today. In fact, in terms of the accent which he has, it, it might actually be closest to that of the pirate captain character I mentioned earlier. Um, the Gentleman is, of course, a Guy Ritchie film, and, and Hugh's role in this was predated by his much smaller part in A Man From U.N.C.L.E., or the M.A.N. from U.N.C.L.E., as my mum called it when telling the family member Hugh's phone call rudely interrupted our movie night a few months back what we happened to be watching at the time. And I think this role, much like that of Phoenix Buchanan in Paddington 2, is reflective of of Hugh's life and it's it's a real it's a true about turn in the type of roles that Hugh is is starring in at this point here he he plays a character who represents what Hugh Grant has actively been battling against most of the past decade namely a slimy journalist with a penchant for the invasion of privacy and doing whatever it takes to get the scoop um, as many of you will know, Hugh Grant was one of a number of celebrities who testified at the Leveson inquiry against the um, the phone hacking scandal. And actually, on, on Graham Norton, Hugh told a funny story that, that a lot of this character of Fletcher in The Gentleman was based on a number of the individuals that Hugh met in the build-up and immediately after the Leveson inquiry. In fact, he recounts one amusing tale of um, having a number of people around to his house for a, a, a gathering which of course wouldn't, wouldn't be allowed right now but getting introduced to uh, a, a number of these kind of so-called journalists some of whom had hacked his phone and one of whom who had actually professed to having broken into Hugh's house. Hugh rather amusingly said well I guess I won't have to show you where the toilet is then. Interestingly enough with the gentleman as many of you who will have seen it or who will have seen the trailer will know that Matthew McConaughey also stars. Although it was interesting to see that um, he and Hugh are in no scenes together and they did not actually meet on set, but they can be found um, talking and, and sharing a, a room together 
on the press tour which followed. And when I DM both of them about the alleged and somewhat surprising rift between them, given the paradoxically intertwined nature of their respective and respected careers, they refused to comment, or, or maybe declined to comment, or maybe, maybe I never actually messaged them. But maybe I will. But both of these roles are undoubtedly a total demarcation from the kind of rom-com sphere that Hugh operated in for the first two phases of his career. I think you can see subtle differences in Florence Foster Jenkins too. That's probably somewhat of a stepping stone into these two roles. And I think the depth and breadth of the characters in which Hugh is kind of really sinking his teeth into now can also be demonstrated by Hugh's return to television in 2018 for the first time in 25 years. Of course, what we are going through at the moment is being commonly referred to as the golden age of television because of the massive budget being put into films, into films, into TV series rather. But I think what is particularly telling for Hugh Grant is the fact that at the moment TV really enables you to explore depths of character that the, the simple time limits of three hours for a film just do not allow. In 2018, Hugh Grant returned in A Very English Scandal, uh, which was written by Russell T Davies, who also wrote the recent Channel 4 smash hit It's a Sin. This also stars Ben Whishaw, although from what I understand, this is rather darker and contains rather a lot more gay sex than Paddington 2. And I think when reflecting on phase three of Hugh's career, I will leave you with a quote that I think quite aptly summarises it. A quarter century after Grant established himself as everyone's crush with his romantic comedy debut in Four Weddings and a Funeral, the actor, who is now in his late 50s, has turned out to have a gift for conveying what happens to an individual when charm curdles into something considerably darker. And I for one particularly hope that Hugh continues this novel and interesting direction to his career in the uh, years and hopefully decades to come. So to conclude and, and really to come back to the question which I open the podcast with, I don't think that Hugh's third act to his career has, has quite hit the public heights of recognition of Matthew McConaughey's McConaissance. Certainly Grant has not won an Oscar yet, but I think he has certainly got both critical and public acclaim for uh, this recent phase of his career. Really, we're just lacking in that buzzword which can catch on like the McConaissance definitely did. I, for one, am struggling to come up with something, so please let me know. Drop a comment on the IDMYD, as absolutely no one is calling it, um, on the I Don't Mind You Decide Instagram page. Drop a comment and let me know if you have an equivalent name which you think aptly describes Hugh's recent run of films. Also, I should be clear that by saying the third act of Hugh's career, I'm not suggesting that this is the final run of films for Hugh. You know, maybe and hopefully there will be more interesting work to come. You know, there could be a fourth act and maybe this will be how he finally trumps 
the age-old foe that I've created for him in Matthew McConaughey. And there you have it. If you're sick of your family in this lengthy lockdown, why not spend some more time with Hugh? Have a Hugh themed lockdown from home. Thank you for spending some time with me, your host. I've been me. You've been you. We've been great. You've been minding and I've been deciding. Until next time, if indeed there is a next time, thank you. Final break.